science. To uh, love and science, we've got a, a, an hour. Well, not not so much science chat. We uh, because I'd just be chatting to myself this week. Um, Andrew's not able to, uh, to be with us this week. He'll we will hear from him, however, and uh, hopefully next week we'll have um, Andrew Andrew Glester with us, and um, Hannah should be back as well. Hannah Bestwick. So uh, we're hoping that uh, they will uh, both be able to be on the show uh, next week and uh, help co-present. Um, we don't know yet of course um who our guests will be because we're not quite sure uh, what will be going on in the world then uh, but this week um i've got uh, one or two interesting science stories for you and uh, we'll be hearing from um, some people that uh, either andrew or i uh, have uh, been interviewing and the first story uh is following on the heels of something we covered uh, last week uh, if you remember uh, Law- uh, uh nigel lawson had appeared on the um, uh, today program and uh, he had basically made a, a, a claim a false claim that the world was cooling and uh, the BBC uh, was challenged the today program was challenged it said they really should have um, uh, uh, confronted uh, Nigel Lawson with this as, as, as false information and uh, they just let it go but uh, uh, a finding was that they were wrong to do that and um, of course his organization has now said that uh, what he said was based on false information and uh, today uh, there's a headline a story uh, uh, for example carried on the BBC uh, web page by Matt McGrath uh, that 2017 is very likely uh, to be uh, in the top three warmest years on record um, it's uh, according to provisional figures from the World Meteorological Organization the WMO it says it's likely to be the hottest year in the absence of the El Nino phenomenon. Uh, El Nino is when um, uh, wind patterns uh, change quite dramatically and we see uh, usually a lot more rain uh, because of them uh, out in the Atlantic. Uh, Scientists argue the long-term trend of warming driven by human activities continues unabated and they say that many of the extraordinary weather events seen this year bear the hallmarks of climate change. So we've had uh, uh, a a running series of extremely uh, damaging uh, hurricanes. Uh, In the opening day of this year's UN Climate Talks, researchers from the WMO have presented their annual State of the Global Climate Report. It follows hot on the heels of their greenhouse gases study from last week, which found that concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere were in fact the highest on record. Um, And uh, the uh, rises in global mean temperature have changed quite dramatically uh, from 1950 
getting dangerously close to the 1.5 degrees threshold that many island states feel temperatures must be kept under uh, to ensure their survival. The analysis suggests that 2017 is likely to come in 0.47 degrees, so nearly half a degree warmer than 1981 to 2010 average. Uh, It's slightly down on 2016 when the El Nino weather phenomenon saw temperatures that were 0.56 degrees, so just over half a degree centigrade above the average. According to the WMO, this year vies with 2015 to be the second or maybe the third warmest mark yet recorded. So that's quite a challenge uh, to us. Scientists will have to do attribution studies to clearly link specific events from 2017 to rising temperatures. In other words, what they're trying to do is figure out what caused what. But they do believe that the fingerprints of climate change are to be seen in events such as tropical cyclones, where the warmer seas can transfer more heat to gathering storms and increased levels can make flooding more damaging. And if you are a lie-lowing country, then obviously um, this is scary for everybody, but particularly uh, for them. Uh, Just out of interest, Hurricane Hurricane Irma was a Category 5 storm for the longest period ever recorded. Uh, Rain gauges in Netherlands, Texas recorded uh, 1,539 millimetres, the largest ever recorded for a single event in mainland United States. So there you go. Um, That's what the um, figures are saying. Uh, uh, at the moment about global warming um apparently horses uh, just uh, go from the sublime uh, to the ridiculous actually this isn't ridiculous at all i didn't mean to imply that it's just that i'm going from something incredibly serious to something which is curious and interesting and important in it in its own right horses can tell the difference between dominant and submissive body postures in humans Uh, apparently Uh, and this is uh, the uh, University of Sussex uh, has come up with uh, with this study Um, what they're saying is that um, uh, when when horses are looking at people who have dominant body language uh, and submissive body language or more friendly uh, body language then uh, they are able to read that language quite clearly one of the interesting things about scientific research is that uh, they spend a a lot of time trying to establish that which we might say well that's common sense or that's obvious or we know that but um, if you use careful carefully designed experiments it is possible bit by bit paper by papers that scientists have to publish papers on these things result by result to actually figure out what is really going on that's basically uh, how we've come uh, to understand uh, the, the the modern world and uh, so though you might say well a horse would know whether somebody was was trying to dominate it or they were just being friendly towards it um, it isn't obvious from what we know about horses unless you can uh, prove it
The findings enhance our understanding of how animals can communicate using body posture across the species barrier. And they're specifically helpful for informing horse handlers and trainers about the way horses perceive human body language. Uh, Psychology researchers uh, at Sussex or uh, at the Sussex-led study uh, work with 30 domestic horses to see whether they were more likely to approach a person displaying a dominant body posture involving the person standing straight with arms and legs apart and chest expanded or a submissive posture slouching keeping arms and legs close to the body relaxed knees and so on and they found that even though the horses have been given food rewards previously by each person when in a neutral body posture they were significantly more likely to approach the individual displaying a submissive rather than a dominant posture in follow-up trials and the uh, co-lead author of the study um, uh, someone called Amy Smith said horses are often thought to be good at reading human body language based on anecdotal evidence such as the clever hands effect Uh, clever (laughs) clever hands uh, played chess and uh, of course he didn't wasn't able to move the pieces around um but he was able to um guide the movement of pieces uh, you know in instruct by tapping the floor he did he did mathematical puzzles so he'd add things up and uh, it would give the right answer do simple uh, multiplication and things and he'd do it by tapping and he was known as uh, clever hands and he traveled all around europe and met uh, some very fa- famous people i believe this is right that he met napoleon um, and did a demonstration for him but i may be wrong with that um, but anyway this is the horse called Cla- uh, clever hands and they realized um, after watching him very carefully, and he, he already was a celebrity, uh, that actually what Hans did was that he watched his handler. Now, his handler wasn't perpetrating a fraud. He just had very, very subtle things. So he was anxious. And when Hans got, say, you know, say three times four and Hans was tapping away and he got to 11. And then, of course, the answer is 12. And just before uh, 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 when Hans actually hits the 12, the handler relaxes and the horse relaxes. And it's so subtle that people weren't picking it up unless you look for it really, really carefully. That's the clever hands effect. And um, uh, uh, Amy Smith, one of the the, the, uh, co-lead on this study, says it's not like that. Uh, Little research has tested empirically these uh, results. Um, uh, it's, but it's not like the clever hands effect. These results raise interesting questions about the flexibility of cross-species uh, communication. And um, evolutionary speaking, animals, including humans, tend to use larger postures to indicate dominance or threat and smaller postures to indicate submissiveness. And horses may therefore have an instinctual understanding of larger versus smaller postures. Anyway, um, Andrew uh, is uh, not uh, uh, here with us this week in uh, person, but that doesn't mean he hasn't been busy. And uh, he has done an interview Uh, with uh, uh, Ian Jones, Dr. Ian Jones, who's uh, been in or is involved with the LIGO uh, uh, project, the LIGO detector, which is all about a new way of looking at the universe um, by detecting gravitational waves. And uh, this is Andrew's interview. 
I'm Ian Jones from the Mathematical Sciences in the University of Southampton. I'm in the LIGO team, in the LIGO Scientific Collaboration, been there for about 14 years now. I'm on the theoretical side of this, so I basically do calculations as to how strong gravitational wave signals from individual spinning neutron stars might be, what the frequency content might be. Um, in the simplest of all possible worlds, if we, say, look at the crab pulsar and it's spinning at 30 hertz, in our simplest models, you just get a gravitational wave at it twice that frequency, but there are more complicated scenarios where um, it's not so clear what the frequency would be and having that sort of prior knowledge of what the frequency is and where to look helps the actual people that do the data analysis a lot because when you know what it's always the case in these noisy sorts of detectors that if you've got more of an idea to begin with as to what you're looking for it's easier to find it yeah so I basically do um, calculations, pen and paper, some on the computer to try and figure out what these signals would look like, which are the best sources to target and which frequencies to, to look at. Um, and my specific interest, my expertise is on individual neutron stars, so I've been interested in them in fact for my whole career. We've known for a long time that neutron stars are incredibly interesting objects, sort of ready-made laboratories provided by nature. So for me, the thing now is to find that occasionally nature smashes two of these laboratories together and see what we get. So yeah, but it, it's just seeing what happens when these two things, which I've studied individually for so long, actually collide together. It's, it's been quite extraordinary. What happens when they do come? Yeah, so, so the key point really is that you can learn some things that you can't learn um, if you've only seen it in the gravity or if you've only seen it in the light. And because they have collided, we, we get to see both. So, for instance, we've been able to test one of Einstein's predictions that gravity and light travel at about the same speed. And because this thing happened so very far away, we're able to look at the small delay between those two things and, and see that it's only about one part in a million billion difference or, 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 or less uh, at the, those speeds. Um, been able to measure how fast the universe is expanding. So these are these are things that we you know you can't do with one or the other. It's it's really bringing those things together. Yeah, yeah. So you've been looking. What do you use normally? Would you use radio astronomy? Too? Yeah. So I've had, sort of heard a foot in both camps. So I'm in LIGO, but because we've not yet seen gravitational wave just from one individual neutron star, I've worked a lot on what we can learn about neutron stars just from radio waves. So radio pulse, radio pulsars have, the, have been the big thing for me in terms of learning uh, about them. Um, and so I've, I've tried to, to think hard about what we, in terms of what we know about neutron stars, how just one could produce gravitational waves. So, for instance, if you had a spinning neutron star, if it's not perfectly axisymmetric, we like to say if it's got a mountain on it, then it's going to be churning up the gravitational field and producing a very steady source of gravitational waves. So we've not, you know, not seen that yet, but we're looking for it. How close would a neutron star have to be to us for, for us to be able to pick up gravitational waves? So in, in terms of these sorts of individual spinning stars, we're probably talking something in the galaxy. We don't know for sure because we're so uncertain about how strong intrinsically the signals are, but we're probably talking about galactic sources. Now, having said that, we don't know what's, what the aftermath has been of this, this collision. It may be that these two neutron stars came together and immediately formed one black hole, or it may be they came together and we, you had a neutron star that just stuck around for a while until it gradually slowed down and lost centrifugal support and collapsed. So some people are wondering if maybe there could be some sort of gravitational waves emitted from that if it's formed from that single star the energetics is probably against us because this is so far away not you know in other words not in our galaxy um, but of course if you don't look you you never find right so it's something that people are thinking about but probably we'd be looking at 
galactic um, so, so not um, uh, collisions of neutron stars but things like famous pulsars like the crab pulsar looking more sort of those uh, objects so right you've got uh, you've got a room full of astronomers here from various different disciplines um, if you could bring them all together and say please point to your telescopes at that what are you asking them to point to? to be honest I think we're probably looking at all the things that we've, we've thought of to suggest so the things that we ask our colleagues our electromagnetic colleagues to look at a lot are the, are the known radio pulsars because if they can give us an accurate timing solution for them we can then look at it in exactly the right way at our gravitational wave data so, but we do ask that and they do oblige and they do give us, give us what we need to do that but another thing that would be great for us would be Okay, so they're also spinning neutron stars in binary systems, um, in, in what are called accreting binary systems, so glowing hot in X-ray because the neutron star is pulling ma- uh, plasma, pulling gas off its companion. We, we don't have um, spin frequencies for many of these. If... Um, we, if we did, we could t- target those. Now, electromagnetic astronomers have looked and not found spin frequencies, but if, if there were even more going on, if they could you know, finally find something, that that would be a big help in, in terms of our gravitational wave searches. And that was uh, Ian Jones talking to Andrew. And um, you can hear that uh, interview. In fact, you can hear the whole of this program. If you go to uh, uh, bcfmradio.com, uh, uh, go to the schedule, look at, look, look at the programs, and you can listen to uh, any of our programs or any of the other excellent programs on uh, BCFM uh, whenever you like. Uh, scientists have been puzzling uh, for years over the genetic peculiarity of a tiny, tiny population of orangutans in Sumatra, but they've finally uh, concluded that they are a new species uh, to science. Uh, The apes in uh, question uh, were only reported to exist after an expedition into the remote mountain forest there in 1997, and since then a research project has unpicked their biological secret. The species has been named uh, the uh, Tapanuli orangutan, a third species in addition to the uh, Bornean and the Sumatran uh, orangutan. Um, it said the the uh, name orangutan means uh, the old man of the forest. Uh, it's the first new great ape to be described in almost a century. And uh, the journal Current Biology uh, has published the work of a team of researchers from the Uni- University of Zurich and uh, Liverpool, John Moore's University. Uh, and uh, it's the Sumatran Orangutan Conservation Programme. And uh, in their papers, they pointed out that there are only 800 individuals remaining, making this one of the world's most threatened ape species. Early on in their study, researchers took DNA from the orangutans, which showed them to be peculiar compared to the other orangutans in Sumatra. Peculiar used in the sense that they are uh, just different. Uh, And uh, so the scientists embarked on a painstaking investigation, reconstructing the animal's evolutionary history through their genetic code. Um, uh, Professor Michael uh, Crutzen from the University of Zurich in Switzerland explained to uh, the BBC that the genomic analysis really allows us to look in detail at the history. If you look at their 
uh, genomes, uh, we can probe deep back in time and ask when did these populations split off. The analysis of a total 37 complete orangutan uh, genomes, uh, the code for the biological makeup of each animal, has now shown that these apes separated from their Bornean relatives less than 700,000 years ago, which in evolutionary time is really, really small. Um, this newly described uh, great ape is going to be added to the list of critically endangered species, just as it's been added to the zoological textbooks. And uh, one of the professors, Professor Witch, uh, said it's very sad, very, very worrying to discover something new and then immediately also realise that we have to focus all our efforts uh, before we lose it. So, um, uh, a little while uh, ago, uh, I was uh, at um, uh, what's called the FameLab competition, and um, I heard somebody called uh, Natalie uh, McCurdy uh, give a talk there. This is a competition where early career scientists um, are basically learning how to be better communicators with the public, but they enter this very high-stress uh, competition uh, who, where in just three minutes they try and wow uh, an audience uh, with a talk from science, perhaps from their own research, as it is in this case. And I talked to uh, Australian Natalie uh, uh, McCurdy about the work uh, that she was doing uh, just as she came off stage. Natalie, big congratulations. This has been an absolutely fabulous event and you spoke brilliantly. How are you feeling? I am so pleased for everyone who got up and just did their absolute best. And I feel like I gave it my all and that's all that I can possibly ask of myself. The competition was so fierce and I, I thoroughly applaud everyone who competed. What was the core idea of your message? That we are trying to find a treatment for macular degeneration, the age-related kind, that can replace the cells that die off, not only physically to help with surgical insertion, but also chemically, so that these cells can last when we implant them. How far would you say you are in, in this process? Because it's a very exciting thing to say to people that we could cure this thing which has caused a lot of people a lot of misery and, and difficulty in their lives. I mean, how, how optimistic are you? How far down the road are you? Well, I'm obviously optimistic. I, I love my work. Um, in terms of how far down the road we are, this is a proof of concept. So this is the very first step in finding any new treatment. We test on cells before we test on anything else. So we're not at the animal model level and we're definitely not at the clinical trial level yet. What is the most difficult bit of this research? What's the trickiest bit so far for you? I think... Research is really a, a series of steps, and each step in itself is conquerable, but you're really climbing Mount Everest. And so the hardest thing for me, if I'm honest, is, is maintaining that momentum, because some days you'll have a fantastic day in the lab, some days it'll be really tough, really challenging when things don't work and you can't quite figure out why when you did it exactly the same last week, and this time it hasn't worked. So... 
I think maintaining that optimism and remembering why you've started doing this research in the first place, it really helped me push through those, those mental barriers and keep going. Well, thank you very much for sharing what you did on the stage. Your research is clearly really important, so we wish you the very best for it. Natalie, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. And that was uh, my interview with uh, Natalie uh, McCurdy. And uh, I said that uh, there's news of uh, a monster planet, a huge planet that's uh, orbiting a, a star in another galaxy. Of course, we're, we're seeing huge numbers of these uh, now, whereas we're getting better and better at uh, detecting uh, solar systems around um, other stars. So uh, uh, for up until very recently, we only knew about planets in our own solar system and now of course uh, it's uh, just amazing uh, to be able to look at whole solar systems which are uh, a considerable distance uh, from us. Uh, there is one such, the planet uh, that you realise it becomes uh, we talk about thousands of objects becomes very very difficult to name them all and so scientists have a particular naming convention astronomers have a naming convention um, uh, this planet is known by the very exciting name of NGTS-1b and it's the size of Jupiter. Jupiter, you will know, is the largest planet in our solar system. It's vast. Um, Andrew, well, not just Andrew, uh, astronomers uh, uh, often talk about it, is a failed star. In other words, it's just not quite big enough uh, to get cooking because when it gets bigger uh, then it gets denser the friction inside of it is greater and sometimes uh, you know these things ignite and they become stars uh, in their own right and Jupiter is just a bit too small a bit uh, just not uh, 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 big enough to turn it into a uh, star uh, probably good for us that it didn't and um, there is a, a planet of this size but it orbits around a red dwarf star it's only half the size of our sun now you say well, what's the problem with that well the problem turns out to be that scientists uh, not only didn't predict that such a massive planet would be able to orbit such a small star but it completely contradicts some of the predictions at the heart of our understanding of how planets form. So all the theories that we've had so far uh, about how planets form, this is a bit of a challenge to that. The mysterious challenging solar system is 600 light years from Earth. In other words, it takes 600 years from the light from that system to get to us. So while we're looking at it, we're looking at what happened 600 years ago. And the ratio between the star and the planet is the most unusual ever discovered, little and large. Uh, Dr. Daniel Bay is from the University of Warwick, led uh, a team of astronomers uh, to look at this, and he said that the discovery of NGTS-1b was a complete surprise. Such massive planets are not thought to exist around such small stars, but this one does. We're already it's already challenging the received wisdom of how planets form, and our challenge now is to find out how common these types of planets are in our galaxy. NGTS-1b was spotted using the next-generation transit survey a robotic array of telescopes in Chile's 
Atacama Desert, designed to search for exoplanets, planets outside of our own solar system, passing in front of their parent stars. And the hot Jupiter gas giant is very close to its star. It's just 3% of the distance between Earth and the Sun and makes one orbit every 2.6 days. It's spinning around there. It has a surface temperature of 530 degrees centigrade. Not a good place for a break. Uh, Professor Peter Wheatley also from the University of Warwick, who heads the NGTS, said um, that this uh, uh, planet was difficult to find despite being a monster of a planet because its parent star is very small and faint. And small stars are actually the most common in the universe, so it's possible that there may be lots of these giant planets waiting to be found. And having worked for a decade to develop the telescope array, it's thrilling to see it's picking out these new and unexpected types of planets. So they're going to be crunching the numbers on that, uh, thinking that through and trying to come up with new theories about how such a strange thing could happen. Now, sticking with the theme uh, of uh, astronomy, uh, I, uh, a little while ago, interviewed uh, Corin Baylor-Jones, who's um, one of the lead scientists working on the uh, Gaia project. This puts two telescopes out in space. Uh, they're not uh, looking at things. They're using uh, radio waves to detect stars in order to create a uh, picture of our own galaxy and um, I talked to him uh, about what the project was and uh, what it was that they were hoping to find. The main objective of, of Gaia is to uh, improve our understanding, our knowledge and understanding of the structure, uh, the formation, the evolution of the galaxy that we live in. Um, so that's its main objective, and this is kind of what has determined the design of the mission and so forth. But in practice, it will actually affect many, many areas of astrophysics, ranging from the solar system to the properties of stars, star clusters, galaxies, uh, even general relativity, uh, tests of general relativity, for example. So it actually has a very, very broad a broad scope and uh, i've been hearing people around the conference talk about they say it's 3d plus what, what what do they mean by that right so if you look at the sky at night then the thing that strikes you other than this it's beauty of course is that you have no real idea of how far away anything is you can sort of imagine that the faintest stars you see may be further away but that's not necessarily true because the stars themselves vary in their intrinsic brightness so one of the great problems that astronomers have faced over actually millennia is to try to work out how far away stars are and so one of the main things that Gaia is doing is going from this two-dimensional impression of a sort of flat uh, a flat celestial sphere to actually getting the distances to stars. And this turned out to be very, very difficult precisely because the stars are so far away. And so Gaia is making a 3D map of the galaxy in the sense that it's measuring distances to much higher uh, accuracy than has been done in the past. So that's the 3D, the 3D plus. The plus refers to, well, the stars don't stay still with time. They are moving relative to one another, relative to the sun. But these motions are also very, very small. And so these, the, the velocities of the stars through space can also be measured through Gaia, by, basically by measuring their positions over time. So the, the plus refers to up to three dimen additional dimensions of the motion uh, through, uh, through space. So you'd be able to look at this map and say, well, that star was here, say, a million years ago. Precisely. So, so the, uh, in the ideal case, you measure the three-dimensional position of a star and its three-dimensional 
speed, a three-dimensional velocity, if you will. And then in principle, you can then trace these, um, this motion backwards or forwards in time, assuming that the, the object hasn't actually accelerated, so it's kept this, this motion with time. And depending on, on how accurately you determine the position and the, and the velocity, you can go further or less far back in time, or indeed into the future, and, and see what the galaxy would lo- look like in the future. If we could go and see it, if we could go and visit it, which clearly we can't, what would we see? So Gaia, the, the basic part of Gaia, so it looks like basically a big cylinder, about two and a half metres across and a few metres high, uh, with a very large 12-metre diameter sunshield, which is uh, blocking the sun but also generating power through solar energy. So it is, a, it is a telescope. It's a very unconventional telescope. So most people, when you look at it, you wouldn't see uh, what you think of a telescope. It does not have a big tube with a, with, a, with a lens at one end or anything. But essentially, it is nonetheless a telescope. In fact, it's two telescopes. Uh, for, for technical reasons, it's observing simultaneously two places in the sky. Gaia is essentially one or if you prefer, two, two telescopes in space, which is continuously observing uh, the entire sky, so, so, so the full sphere of the sky as, as, as seen from its observing position. Um, it's not like Hubble Space Telescope so, or conventional telescopes. It's not taking images, so we're not producing pretty pictures, unfortunately, but we are producing very valuable data uh, on the positions and the velocities of these stars. So um, when the, all this data is published, we're not going to see star maps. Um, well, in fact, we can produce a map. We can reconstruct a map. And in fact, that's one of the goals is to reconstruct a three-dimensional map. But it won't be an image in the conventional sense of having taken a, a photograph of all the objects kind of simultaneously. So, and also, we, you know, we're not, take, we're not trying to take color pictures and things like this, although we actually do obtain color information, uh, but not for the sake of uh, making images in, in the conventional sense, but of trying to understand the, the properties of the objects we're looking at. Corinne, thank you very much indeed. And that was me talking to uh, Corinne Baylor-Jones, who is uh, one of the people heading up the uh, Gaia project, well, those two telescopes uh, way out in space, mapping our own uh, galaxy. And um, uh, just before I finish with uh, uh, the science news, I wonder how many uh, female scientists uh, you can name. Uh, the BBC is uh, doing its 100 women, so it's highlighting the achievements of uh, 100 women at the moment. You can find that on the BBC uh, website. Um, but uh, it's also got a piece on its uh, science and environment page, uh, Seven Trailblazing Women in Science. And um, I wonder how many uh, women scientists uh, you can name. Um, Apparently, and sadly, more than half the people in the UK when surveyed can't name a famous woman in science. Uh, A a 2014 YouGov survey of almost 3,000 people conducted on behalf of UK grassroots group Science Girl uh, found that uh, only 47% of those asked could name a famous woman scientist. Uh, And of those who did... Who do you think they came up with? It was Marie Curie. Um, and uh, others simply just named the male scientist uh, instead, but that, uh, that, that doesn't count. And uh, Marie Curie, uh, she's uh, famous also with her husband, Pierre Curie, uh, because of the discovery of radioactivity. But Marie um, announced the discovery of a new chemical uh, called, or a new element rather, polonium, naming it after a native country, Poland. Uh, and the same year, the Curies discovered radium. So there you go. Well, look, I'm delighted to say that uh, I am joined by John Ford. 
uh, getting getting Bristol home. I hope I've got you on the right microphone. Number two should be. Hey, yeah, there, there you are. Hey, you're that's there. science yeah. for you. you that's right. pretty cool, isn't it? Hi, <laughs> John. How are you, how you I'm doing? all right. Yeah. Um, I can name a woman scientist, and this is a lady that I actually love watching. She's a TV presenter as well, and she's one of the co-hosts of um, the Sky at Night, and, yeah. and started working with Patrick Moore and took over. And she, it's Maggie Pocock. Okay, it's a double-barreled name. Yes. Um, she's a, an astrophysicist, I yes, guess, isn't she? Yes, she is. And she, but, but I mean, she's so enthusiastic on her yeah. subject, isn't she? She, she's, she absolutely. She's, she, I, I had the great pleasure of meeting Maggie oh, right. uh, some years ago. She came on a, a course that uh, I was running, and she's just become stellar. Uh, well, exactly. <laughs> quite, yeah, I mean, quite, quite literally, it's wonderful that she's doing yeah. that job. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Stella. Um, I'll get on to that in a second. Um, on this day in 1572, a supernova, you, were, you talked about this just now, was, was first noted by Wolfgang Schiller. Have you, is this a fellow you've come across? Do you know? I, Andrew just probably slips has. me for that. Oh, yeah. Andrew's bound yeah. to have done, yeah. It was in the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia, uh, Cassiopeia I should say. Oh, yeah. Um, but was seen by many observers throughout Europe. Um, on this day in 1572, it just seems such a long time ago that... Yeah people would be able to see these things yes yeah yeah it was it was in the far east sky it, it appeared as a new star and um this fellow wolfgang schiller began to meticulously record uh, the appearance all those years ago uh, from 1572 he wasn't the first person to see it but he did gain uh, fame about it in his book called and you've probably heard of this and um, this is where we come on to stella it was called stella nova his book um ah. and uh, it is still in print now uh, it, it, latin it, for new star you're right it's yeah. amazing so long yeah. ago and they were making these discoveries yeah, and it, it was so bright, this, this supernova. Uh, for two weeks, you could see it during the daytime as well. That's how bright it was. Uh, yeah. I don't know if anyone's seen these, uh, these things in the daylight recently well do you I, know there's a there's a star uh, it's beetlejuice if you look at orion you know about yeah. orion's belt and the top left hand star yeah. is called beetlejuice they say it's about to go supernova wow. but that could be next week uh it could be uh tomorrow <laughs> it could be in a thousand years time but it's all yeah. set to pop but relatively and speaking that would be now, bright yeah. as bright as the moon wow. in the sky yeah that'd be yeah. fantastic i wonder if it'll happen yeah. in our lifetime yeah well look that's john uh for John's uh, going to get Bristol home um, after the news, so stay uh, tuned for that. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, don't forget to uh, come back next week and have yourself a very good evening. Mm-hmm.